Well, we're going through the book of Luke, and today you're going to see the last question that anybody asked Jesus in Luke's gospel. But sadly, just like so often today, they're not really asking a question because they've already made up their mind what they think about him. So instead, they are trying to humiliate him publicly by showing what they think is the absurdity of believing in the afterlife. Heaven, hell, angels, demons, resurrection, or anything outside of and beyond this right here, right now, earthly life. Turn with me to Luke 20. Luke chapter 20, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 27. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. Now, I'm going to tell you more about the Sadducees later in the message, but let me tell you a little trick that I have for, we don't hear about the Sadducees as often. It's usually the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees. This is another very significant group, smaller group, but more influential. The way you can keep it straight, the Pharisees believed everything and were very careful about trying to do it. The Sadducees believe in nothing supernatural, if you can imagine. They were leaders, religious leaders. No heaven, no hell, no afterlife, no rewards. And so they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in heaven. There you go. You're welcome. Worth the price of admission. So we've got Sadducees coming to him now, and they don't believe there's a resurrection, so of course they want to trick him on their own grounds. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They are referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it was a very merciful, kind compassionate law called leveret marriage. You need to appreciate in that day, there was no welfare, no social security. If a woman, if her husband died and she was a widow and she had no son, she was destitute. There was no one to take care of you, no one to provide. So if a woman had a husband die and they had no son, the dead man's brother should marry her, produce a son, and that son would be considered their line, not his, and would continue on with the family and provide for her. This is what they're referring to. And so they say in verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all, I don't know how they got any other brother to marry her, because you're like, whoa, something's off with her. But seven of them did it, and they all died. Verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, he's just talking about human beings who live right here, right now. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. One of the reasons for marriage was pr to produce additional human beings, because guess what? We keep doing what? Dying. 
They cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels. And I don't get excited here. People have made all kinds of wrong conclusions. Oh, we're going to be. He doesn't say you're going to be an angel. We're not going to get wings. We're not going to. He's saying they're equal to. And the angels don't marry either. And angels don't die. So human beings will be like angels in that way. But we were we, forevermore. We will be the only ones created in his image. Angels don't get saved. Angels aren't created in the image of God. Human beings are, but we'll be like them in that we'll no longer die and we'll no longer marry. They're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Remember the passage of the burning bush in Exodus 3? God comes to Moses. The bush is burning, and he says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground, and he calls Moses to go deliver the children of Israel. He's referring to that passage in Exodus. Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared ask him any question. But he said to them, he's like, all right, I got a question for you. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? He's referring to one of their favorite messianic passages in Psalm 110. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, he's going to quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In that day, no father would ever call his son Lord. Big deal that I came before you, I have authority over you. He's saying, David literally said, there's gonna be a son from my line, God promised it, but I call him Lord. Jesus says, what in the world is going on here? So what do we need to see about Jesus from this passage? First thing, number one. Number one, don't limit what he can do. Don't limit what he can do. And once again, I love it when one of these encounters, you can find it in the other gospels. So you can find this same encounter in Matthew and Mark. And when you pull them all together, you can get additional information about what Jesus actually said. And Matthew, Matthew actually tells us and shows us how bold Jesus was in the way he answered them. Because in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, Jesus leads right in first. Before he even tells the story about Moses and the burning bush and he just looks at them and says, because see, we're towards the end now. He's only got a couple days that he'll be alive here on this earth. This is Wednesday. He looks at them and says, you are wrong. Boom. Before I explain what's going on, let me just tell you, you're wrong. You are wrong. Matthew twenty two twenty nine, And I'll tell you why you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're leaders, religious leaders. People look up to you. You lead the nation, but you're wrong. And here's why. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You realize he's given us what is still today true 
if you don't know the Bible, if you don't know and believe the Bible is full of truth, and if you don't believe that God has power, you'll be wrong on all kinds of things. If you think you know enough, all we need is what experts say, what I think, what I believe, what I feel, and what human beings can do, our measure of power, you'll be wrong all the time about what matters most in this world, just like they were. You're wrong. You're drawing wrong conclusions. You're making wrong decisions. You're motivated by wrong things. And here's why. You don't know what the Bible says, and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the power of God. What about you? Do you know the Bible? And do you know the power of God? Do you have have a power outside of your own? Do you have truth outside of your own? Are you willing to submit to any kind of truth beyond what you think or feel or what our culture says? And do you recognize there's power beyond this world and what people can do? And so, wow, if you think it was painful for them at the end of Luke 19, remember right at the end of Luke 19 where he drove out the money changers from the temple. That was their business. The Sadducees ran that, you guys, and it was a money-making business. They made millions, no exaggeration, millions from bilking pilgrims with high exchange rates. So Jews lived all over the known world with different kinds of money. And when you got to Jerusalem and you wanted to make an offering, it had to be a shekel. So you have to exchange your money, just like I see at the airport when I go to other countries, you gotta exchange your money for a shekel. They were charging exorbitant rates of exchange. And people have traveled a long way, and so you don't want to travel with a goat or a lamb or a heifer or a dove, so you could buy one once you got there. They were sticking it to people with huge prices on sacrifices and huge exchange rates on money. As painful as that was, that he's just crushed their money-making business and did that publicly, imagine how painful this is, that he's calling them out and doing it in front of the crowd and taking a shot at their theology and their low view of God. Their theology and their low view of God. And they are not accustomed to this. They're not accustomed to being wrong or being called wrong in public. So here's why I wanna unpack a little more Sadducees. Pharisees were very, very, very focused on doing everything God's word says. When you see how many encounters he had with them, yes, They kind of drove him crazy, but they were very Bible-oriented, very supernatural thinking, very what-does-God-say problem. They just thought they could do it. Whatever God says, we can do it. This group, here's who the Sadducees are, much smaller group, but they are wealthy. They are influential. They are very political. They're not against Rome. They collaborate with Rome because they want positions of influence. They're aristocratic. And here's what's interesting, even though there were far more Pharisees who believed more about the Bible, there was the Sanhedrin. Every now and then you'll see that word, the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body, like our Supreme Court, that made all the most important decisions about Israel. The Sanhedrin had 70 seats, and they were filled almost entirely by Sadducees. When you see reference to a chief priest or a high priest, all Sadducees, all Sadducees. Josephus, the historian that lived then, said, quote, this group, not the Pharisees, not the Herodians, not the Essenes, this group, quote, was the most brutal and harsh towards other people, including their own Jewish people. Why? 
You think about it a minute. If you believe that right here, right now is all we have, it's not what the Pharisees thought. They were so busy trying to be good and go to heaven, you would just say, grab all I can right now. Grab it now. This is all we got. This is all we got. I want to be in influence positions. I want money. I want stuff. I want control. I want power because this is all we have. This is who he's talking to right now. They're not, and yet they were revered because chief priest, high priest, Sadducees, they're not used to being wrong. People don't look at them and say, you're wrong. And it's interesting, even Jesus uses a Greek verb right there when he says you're wrong. It's a Greek verb in the passive verb tense. You realize that means you, it's not being done to you by someone else, you're doing it to yourself. And the verb literally means you have caused yourself to wander and be led astray and be cut loose from the stabilizing reality of God's truth and God's power. You realize our world loves to harp on and on about, let's be real, let's stick with reality, let's stick with reality. You Christians are, you guys, you're never more in touch with reality than when you acknowledge God's truth and God's power. That's when you really see things the way you should. That's when things actually get framed up in the way they should so you'll know what you need to know. He said, you've caused yourself to wander and be led astray and cut loose from the stabilizing reality of God's truth and God's power. And you did it to yourself. In other words, he says, your very question exposes you and is an indictment against you and what you've done to yourself you don't even know the scriptures and you certainly don't know the power of God or you would not be ridiculing the afterlife and using such a ludicrous story to do it. You're wrong, you're wrong. And look what it's doing to you. Here's what I want you to think about. We sometimes think, oh, if I could just explain the gospel better, if I just knew my Bible better, if I was just a better person with conversation and argumentation and apologetics and answers, please don't try to be stupid. Grow as you can. But do you realize when someone doesn't want to believe in Jesus, when someone does not want to believe in Jesus, they are cut loose from God's truth and God's power you begin to be blinded by your own unbelief so that more and more and more you just get entangled in your own web of self-deception. But you did it to yourself. We tend to act like, oh, people are truth seekers. They're truth seekers. Oh, she's seeking truth. He's seeking truth. The average human being is seeking truth that matches what they already want to believe. And will the world give it to you? Can you find, quote, truth that matches what you wanted to believe? Yeah, people are not seeking wide open. Whatever, wherever it lands, whatever it concludes, if I know it's truth, I'll do it. Oh, I wish, I wish. Even like right now, I love Elizabeth Elliot, and she's dead now. And she wrote me a little card. I pulled it out again last week to look. And uh, in her 80s, I tried to write everybody that I'm grateful for that's influenced me before they died. And she wrote me back. Well, she, two new biographies on her, so I'm, I'm moving through, and it's excellent. She's the one who had a husband who died with four other missionaries, speared to death. 
And here's what's interesting. She talks about a, a Life magazine photographer. He's famous. He went on to do famous stuff in Vietnam and other places. He flew out to the village where she and all the widows were and spent long amounts of time with them. And he said no other Christian book he'd ever read was as convincing as spending time with them. He was so convinced. And reading Jim's journals, he said, were so persuasive. She spent hours. She was a very intellectual, academic, well-read, intelligent, sharp lady. She could hold her own with anybody. Long conversations with this man to point him to Christ and to lead him to Christ. And here's what she said he said. She said, oh, I long for you to believe in Christ. He looked at her and said, I do believe. I do not accept it for myself. Do you hear the difference? He was acknowledging, I don't lack for knowing enough truth. It's all pretty convincing. I don't choose to accept it for myself. That's what Romans 1.18 tells us. Remember that? What do human beings do with truth? You can bring truth, you can bring truth, you can bring truth. They suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. For what may be known about God is fuzzy, graining, barely understandable. No wonder no one believes. Is what? Plain to them. Why? For God has made it plain to them. Creation, here's what's going on. Creation, conscience, and special revelation. Creation, conscience, and special revelation holds everyone accountable. They don't want it to be true. The Sadducees didn't want to believe. And at that point, your own unbelief will blind you, blind you, and lead you further and further into just a web of self-deception. So what kind of truth He's talking about truth and power. He's like, oh, you're wrong. You don't know the truth of God's word. You don't know the power of God. What kind of truth and power does Jesus choose to highlight in his answer to them? Letter A. Oh, he wants them to know that he can change the way they face their greatest fear. What's the greatest human fear? Say it. Death. Death. Oh, from the cradle to the grave, this haunts us. My news feeds that I read are constantly showing, oh my goodness, they've just discovered something that when they shot it in mice, they live 5% longer. Yay, 5% longer. Okay, maybe the day will come they shoot it in you and you live 5% longer, but you still do what? Say it, to die. You cannot Solve this problem. You might delay it, but you will not eliminate it. We're going to die. We're going to die. Greatest fear. And so Jesus straightens them out about marriage. If you're kind of disappointed, I hope you're not. But if you're thinking, oh, I wanted this to be a message all about heaven and marriage. And will I know my spouse? And do we know each other? And people, the reason I'm not doing that with this passage is learning about heaven and learning something about marriage is an aside. It's worth noting but that's not the point of this passage at all. The point is that there is absolutely an afterlife. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a judgment, and there is something beyond what you can touch and taste and experience in this temporal, time-bound, oh-so-quickly-fading 
world. First John says what? The things of this world are right now, what are they doing? Passing away, you can't hang on to it. They're passing away, passing away, passing away. He wants us to understand there is an afterlife. Look at what he says in verse 37, 38. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I love, I love, love, love learning about Jesus, watching Jesus more and more and more. When we finish Luke in 2024, Lord willing, I'm just, I'm going to be sad. Every year when I get through my four gospels, there's a sadness that sets in. Goodbye, Jesus. I mean, I know I still have him, but I love just seeing him every year, how he interacts with people, what he thinks, what he, he is the most amazing person ever. And so what I want you to see is happening right here. What he does right here is brilliant because he's refuting them on their own terms by using what little bit of the Bible they actually still do believe. The reason he reaches for Moses is while the Pharisees believed in all the Old Testament, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The law, Moses, he wrote this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they think they've trapped him because they know the Old Testament talks about the resurrection. You realize the Old Testament talks about resurrection? In Psalm 16, Psalm 49, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26 and others, it talks about a resurrection. They don't believe in that part of the Bible. They think they've got him. He uses what they do still believe and says, all right, how about this? He quotes what God said to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but they're dead and gone now. Uh Uh-uh. I am, therefore they still are alive and well in my presence. I'm the God of people that are alive. I'm talking about them like right now. I am, I am, I am, not I was. And as long as I am, they still are alive. The scribes who were in the crowd were like, ooh, well spoken, touche, one for Jesus. I I love it in Matthew. Matthew actually says they were astonished. And it's a Greek verb that means to be outside of your wits. Street term, he blew their mind. He blew their mind with his answer, and he does it constantly. Oh, he is amazing. So he shatters our greatest fear. Look at verse 36 when he says, verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. It's the same incredible hope that he declared at the grave of Lazarus. Remember that in John chapter 11? When Martha and Mary were so distraught that he hadn't come sooner so that that Lazarus wouldn't die. And he said, I, what's the word? Am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die. You will die physically. You're not going to eliminate that. Yet shall he live. 
yet shall. The hope that we have as believers is your loved one, your spouse, your grandmother, that dear child. Anyone who knows Jesus Christ, the moment they die, they've never been more alive. Feel free to sorrow, feel free to grieve. It's understandable, it's our loss. But they wouldn't come back, even if they could. They're more alive than they've ever been. And they're in the presence of the most glorious person, Jesus Christ. They're with him immediately, with him immediately. Though they die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But oh, look at something else that we desperately need that's tucked down into his answer. Letter B, he can change how you face a holy God. And that is our biggest problem. Oh, listen, fear of death, yeah, fear of death, though it haunts us from the cradle to the grave, is not your biggest problem. It's not my biggest problem. Woo! Facing a holy God the very moment death ushers you into his presence, and it will, is your biggest problem. Oh, how can I face a holy, holy, holy God. What can I do with my sin as I stand in the blinding, radiant light of his glory and sense the very essence of unadulterated good and the very standard of all justice so that I am laid bare and undone in a way that shows me to be unrighteous, unholy, unworthy, and unable to do anything about it for myself. That's our biggest problem. That's, that's what's coming after death. What am I gonna do with my sin? Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord, Isaiah 6, high and lifted up? Whoo! And did he say, hey, it's great to be here. He's like, oh, I am what? What's the word? I like it in Old King James. Undone. Undone. It's a good word. I'm undone. Why? For I am a sinful man. Sin. You're going to see your sin. Oh, they'll be laid. No secrets. No way to cover up. The depth. All of our sinfulness in the presence of holiness and radiant glory and goodness and justice. What am I going to do? And so Jesus uses two hope-filled, life-changing, eternity-altering phrases that shows that he solved the problem once and for all. Look at verse 35 where he talks about those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. Those who, he's talking about a group. He's talking about a group that are considered worthy to attain to that age. So if you're like me, and I hope you are, you're just thinking, who's that group? How, 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 how were they considered this? And how did it become that way? Why are they considered worthy to attain? And how did they get it? Jesus doesn't answer that question in this passage, but the Greek verb 
he uses, considered worthy, points us in the right direction. Because it is a Greek verb that literally means to be counted as worthy or be made worthy, even though you're not. Oh, you, here's where Christianity is in a category unto itself, unlike any other religion. Every other religion does have more hope in humanity and says you're not that bad, but you do need to know the way to do all the right things. We'll tell you the way. Jesus never said, let me tell you the way to make yourself right. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he took on, every other religion has a God outside of this world shouting down or giving you a religious book or a list of things to do Only Christianity has a God who took on flesh and came into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why there's security. When you talk about assurance of salvation, you shouldn't be combing over your life and saying, but I'm not sure I'm doing all of of enough of the right things now. I'm not that great of a Christian. No, you're not. You're worse than you even know. Get over that. You just keep looking at Jesus and say, the more I have an awareness of how bad I am, the more I celebrate. That's why I needed a Savior. That's why I needed a Savior. And he's a great Savior. And who he saves, he keeps. He's lost no one yet. He finishes what he starts. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's not something you achieve or do for yourself. It's something that's done for you and applied to you as if you did it, but you didn't. That's what the word justification actually means in the book of Romans. It literally means it's a courtroom term that doesn't mean, oh, you were filthy, but I look at you now and you're good, you're clean, you're right. It is a term that means someone declares you right. You're no better than you were before. Someone declares you right and that standing is put to your account as if it was yours. Hallelujah, what a savior. Not what a system, not what a religion, What a savior. We're not talking about religion, and Jesus didn't come to start another religion. He came to offer a lifelong relationship with him that starts with you trusting in what he did, not what you think you can do. Oh, they were counted worthy, made worthy. That's what the apostle Paul is talking about in his own personal testimony. Every year I read through the Bible and one of my favorite, I got so many favorite chapters now, but one of my favorite chapters is Philippians 3 where he gives his testimony. Go there with me. Philippians 3, chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. He says, we're the Jews. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Watch this. So he's testifying about what he understands now, what he believes now that he's encountered Jesus, and put how much confidence? Say it louder. No. No confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, let me just talk stupid for a minute. 
to all of you that think you have reason to say, but I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I grew up in a Christian family. My grandfather was a circuit riding preacher. Who cares? But there's people who think, you know, and I've never done anything terrible. I've broken little laws, but not any big ones. And when I look around and I compare myself to others, I'm way ahead of other people. He says, let me talk to you, you people that think that way. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I stood out. I was ahead. As to the law, a Pharisee. These were the people that said, if God said it, let's do it. If he said tithe, let's count all the leaves on our mint plant. And if there's 16 leaves, give 1.6 leaves to God. We're being so careful. We're going to do it right I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I thought I was just doing it and keeping it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my, say it, my Lord. He's now my Lord. I don't know about him. I know him personally. He's in my life. My Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish right there in the Greek is the word skibala. It's something you step in in the yard if you have a dog. And the kids have been assigned to scoop the poop, but they don't do it very carefully. Literally, it was a word that meant excrement. He's being really bold here. It stinketh unto high heaven everything I was clinging to, everything that I thought showed me to be better. It's nothing but rubbish, excrement, refuse in order that I may gain Christ. Now, here's what I want you to understand. You can't have Christ until you turn away from everything that you actually think makes you not in great need of him. Does that make sense? And, and sometimes we think, oh, it'd be so hard to turn away from drug addiction. It'd be so hard to turn away from sexual immorality if you'd gotten accustomed to it. Let me tell you what's so hard for human beings to turn away from. Our own self-righteousness that we've been clinging to that we think makes us better. It's very hard. But until you lay it down and call it skibala, you're not interested in a savior, a savior, a savior. Then I may gain Christ. And notice this, and be found in him. You realize when you're born again and you become a Christian, it's not like, oh, now I follow him. You're in him. Your total identity That's what Colossians 3 talks about. That's now your identity. I'm in Christ. God the Father, holy, 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 unadulterated goodness, the very standard of justice. Now when he looks at you, if you have submitted to Jesus as Lord and put your faith in him, he sees you in Christ. That's why he loves you and can sing over you and accept you and listen to you And that's why there's right now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and be found in him. And then he makes it very clear, not having a righteousness of my own. That's what I've been clinging to that comes from the law. How do you get a righteousness of your own? You keep looking at God's commands and saying, well, I'm doing pretty good. 
That's how you get your own righteousness. I'm doing pretty good. Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Oh, I love this last phrase. The righteousness from God. Someone has to give it to you. You don't generate it. You don't manufacture righteousness. You manufacture sin. The righteousness that comes from God and depends on, say it, faith. There you go. It's an alien righteousness outside of me. It's not something inside of you that you finally find. Oh, I'm actually pretty good. Comes from God, depends on faith. Comes from God, depends on faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what do you have today? What do you have? What do you have? What are you trusting in? What are you clinging to? How do you talk? What helps you sleep better when you do think about death and standing before God? What gives you assurance? If, if the sentence starts with, well, I, 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 not a great start. He, he did it for me and he doesn't change. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, Jesus. Look at the middle of verse 36 where he talks about sons of God in contrast to the sons of this age in verse 34. Every human being is born a son of this age automatically, human being. But it's only when you put your trust in Christ that you become a son of God. And the reason, ladies, don't be offended that it doesn't say sons of God and daughters of God is that in that day, sorry, Sons are the ones that had all the privileges, all the inheritance, and God wants to make sure you know you're equal. You're a son of God and have full inheritance and rights and privileges because of Jesus Christ. You've been adopted into his family with full privileges and rights and inheritance. But there's something else I want you to see about Jesus in this passage that's so good, so good, and you see it all through the Gospels, but you're going to see it again right here, because this is the last time he will ask any question. This is the last time he'll debate like this. Even when he gets drug around, we're going to see in the chapters ahead, in front of all kinds of people, he mostly refuses to speak at all, just silent. Look at what we get right here. Don't ever, number two, think that he's given up on you. Oh, don't ever think he's given up on you, that you've gone too far, done too much, said too much, been too bold. It doesn't matter what you've said against him or done against him, said about him or done against him. He's not given up on you. You say, Brad, how are you getting that from this passage? Well, let me give it to you by the context. Remember where we are in chapter 20? This is one, I know it's been several sermons, but keep in mind, this is one long, exhausting, conflict-filled, emotionally draining day. All of chapter 20 happens on Wednesday. So this is late in the day now. Oh, and he's been dealing with people that hate him and are trying to trap him and eliminate him and ridicule him and expose him and mock him bring him down. This is what's been going on. I don't know about you. Never lose sight of the fact he was fully God, but fully what? Did he get tired? Did he get discouraged? 
Did he feel pain and think, why would someone be treated? Yes, 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 yes. So picture this day, three groups have come against him, one after another, and taken a shot at it. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and now the Sadducees. Oh, could we just be honest? Most of us at this point in the day, late in the day, tapped out, would just say, you can all go to hell, right? You just all go to hell. I'm done, I'm so done. You wanna attack? Oh, watch me, I can attack. I will take you apart. I will dismantle you. Not what he does next. Wow. Not what he does next. Oh. You see his compassion, you guys, by what he does next. What's he gonna do in the face of this kind of hostility? What you see is his mercy and compassion compels him, compels him to bring it back to the most important question one more time of who he is. That's what he's doing in verses 41 to 44. Oh, this is the last question they'll ask him, but he's got one more question for them and of everything he could have done, he makes it a question that he hopes will prick them, provoke them, cause them to reconsider. Believe in me, he longs for them to be saved and for him to give them eternal life because they believe he is who he says he is. That's why he chooses one more time to push them to reconsider who he is. So he's quoting from Psalm 110, one of their favorite messianic psalms, where David is talking about, God promised me that the Messiah, that one that would solve our biggest problem, is gonna come through me, wow! But he says to them, notice, David talks about a son, but then says, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to that son. He's calling this person Lord, he says, How can he do that if it's his son? Why does he call him Lord? Because he's talking about me, fully God, fully man. I am that one. Please believe, please believe, please believe. Despite their hatred and desire to kill him, he longs to save them. And that, I hope you know, is what he's still doing today. Oh. When he returns, you guys, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. It says he'll be on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth with which he will strike the nations. You're going to see almighty, terrifying, holy, holy, judge, king, Jesus. I don't want you to see him that way. Today, he is still compassionate and merciful and longs for you to believe. Because you realize we still got the same kind of people today. So don't be guilty of it. Well, there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. Letter A. You might be self-righteous, religious, and think you don't need him. You're a Pharisee. I grew up in the church. I was baptized as a baby. I was sprinkled. I was baptized by immersion. I made a decision at youth camp. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I try to treat people the way I'd want to be treated. I try to make a difference in this world. These are the things I hear relentlessly as I engage people and try to share the gospel. And it does make for a better society, thank you. It won't get you into heaven. People who think, I'm not that bad, tell me what to do and I'll do it, I'll do it. You don't think you need a savior. You're too busy being religious. 
And so that's why we have an entire book in the Bible that just brings it. Oh, it's not works. You cannot be saved by works. It's by grace. It's by faith. The entire book of Galatians. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians, beginning in 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not, here's that precious word that means his righteousness is applied to your account. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith. In who? Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then, in case you hadn't gotten it, he just pushes it one more time. Because by works of the law, how many people will be justified? No one will be justified. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of works, not of works, it's the gift of God. It's a gift. But to receive a gift, you guys, your hands have to be empty. They can't be clutching all your goodness and all your righteousness and all your awards and your resume. Empty hands. I need a savior. I need a savior. But there's another group, letter B. You might be so earthbound, so earthbound that you think it doesn't matter. That's the Sadducees. I'm living for right here, right now. I'm getting the good stuff the world says get. I'm going after it, and I'm actually getting it. I'm doing pretty good on the career path. I've got a house. I've got, I'm on my way. I'm getting stuff. I live for right now. Don't talk to me about one day, someday. That's the Sadducees. And there are people today living just like this. So I just want to remind you, back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus already thumps this and warns us when he talks about the rich fool who had so much of the right stuff, he said what? I'm going to have to tear down my barns and build what? Bigger. I don't even know how to store all this. I'm certainly not going to give it away, but I'm going to keep it. I'm piling up stuff. Oh, listen to what he says. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God, two of my favorite words in the Bible that often are followed by an incredible promise and sometimes followed by a terrifying warning. It's the latter. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. You're going to stand before God. You don't get to choose when you die, you guys. This night your soul is required. And then he reminds him, and then who, whose stuff will all this be? All this that you've saved and prepared and piled up. Whose will it be? Because you're leaving it behind. And it will do you no good in the presence of God. Are you living like a Pharisee who doesn't think he needs a savior? Are you living like a Sadducee just right here, right now, consumed with the things of this world, thinking it doesn't matter, or it doesn't matter yet. I'm young, I'm gonna get some things going, and then I'll consider eternity, then I'll consider. You don't know that you have a future to reconsider today, today today. And so let me tell you, how do you avoid either one of these mistakes? Point number three. Oh my goodness, point number three. Don't let your voice be the only one you hear. 
Oh, do we not live in a day where everyone's talking? Words, words, words. Everyone's proclaiming. Oh, telling you what they think, telling you what they think truth is, what matters most, my truth, your truth, my truth, my identity, my. We live in a day, a noisy, noisy day of words. Let me help you. One of the best things you could do that human beings aren't actually comfortable with, spend some time being quiet. Learn to listen to someone besides your own voice, particularly God's word. Do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? Here's what I'm talking about. To hear somebody else's voice, you've actually got to stop talking, stop defending, stop pretending, and stop generating question after question after question after question that sometimes is simply a way to fill the space with the sound of your own voice so that you don't have to listen to him. Don't hear me saying it's wrong to ask a question. If it's a sincere question that wants to get additional information that would help clarify something for you. But I hope you know, people ask questions for a lot of other reasons. You can ask a question that's a statement You can ask a question that's designed to trap somebody else. You can ask a question that is simply designed to delay and avoid ever making a decision. Here's how I I hear it when I try to go spiritual with people. Heaven, hell, the Bible, Jesus. I still have questions. As if, oh, until I don't have questions, I can't make it done. But here's what I sense. They're not looking for answers. It's like, I love using this phrase that allows me now to just move on like a Sadducee with right here, right now, because I still have questions about all that. Well, are you looking for answers? Because there are answers, but keep this in mind. At the end of the day, no human being makes a decision about anything because all their questions have been answered. You buy a car, right? You ask questions, I hope. You ask about interest rates. You ask about payment plans. You ask about stuff on it. You ask about follow-up. You ask, but at the end of the day, don't we still have some stuff we're not sure about, but we know enough and think, I'm gonna do this. Buy this house or that house. Accept this job offer or that job offer. Marry this person or this person. We never make a decision because every question has been answered. We make a decision because we believe what we know is enough to step forward and trust and make a decision. It's no different with spiritual, and yet people act like, oh, if I have any, oh, if Jesus would just answer all my questions, I would believe not true. Trust always has a measure that is beyond simply, oh, do you think I have questions? I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor 37 years. I'm a certified biblical counselor. Do I still have questions? Absolutely. And sometimes the more you know and the closer you get to them, it just raises another question. But do I know enough? I have no doubt. Brad Bigney doesn't wake up and say, oh, I used to really believe and now I'm just faking it because it's a pretty good gig and I don't know what else I would do. But I've got all these doubts now. I do not. I know enough. And he has proved himself to be who he says he is. The scriptures are true and the power of God is true. The scriptures are true and the power of God is true. And his spirit is at work in this world and in me. 
and I have direct access to his throne, and one day I won't see through a glass darkly, and I'll see face to face and have a bunch of questions answered. But the questions that matter most, who are you, who is he, who are you in light of him as a sinner, and what are you gonna do with your sin problem has been answered by God's word. So the only question that really remains is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you gonna do? I love it in Romans 3.19, Paul actually says, he says, the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world be held accountable to God. You realize when you're talking and when you're asking questions, you believe you're, you're in the driver's seat and you're not accountable because they haven't answered my questions, so I'm not accountable. You gotta stop talking and say, I'm guilty. I'm accountable to God. Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones actually said, to some degree, a Christian is a person who stops talking. Shut your mouth and says, God, you got me. And God, thank you. I believe I'm putting my trust in this. Oh, come to Christ. You realize if you reject Christ, my friend, you've got nowhere else to go. You've got nowhere else to go. Come to him today. He loves you. He longs to save you and give you eternal life. Oh, God, thank you for a savior. Thank you for coming into this world. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh, God, give us ears to hear. Lord, we think how often Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We can be in this world surrounded by creation and the noise of our conscience you gave us and even your word and still not hear. Give us ears to hear and give us an awareness freshly of the truth of your word and your power, your word and your power, so that we might live effectively for your glory in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.